How many of you, when you think of your relationships, wish that there were some shalom in your relationships? How many of you think of your households, wish that there were some shalom in your household, some completeness, some wholeness, that it would be put back together in a way where joy and honor of each other might be the norm rather than fighting and bickering? How many of you know somebody that's difficult to love? Don't raise your hand because the person might be sitting next to you, right? I get that. Okay. Don't do that. This last year and a half seemed to make more of them, don't you think? Have you ever really noticed that? It's almost like the crazies have been multiplying the last year and a half. Like, there was some crazy before, you know, the pandemic started, but there are some crazy, 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 crazies now that the pandemic is kind of full of swing. And it's not just the pandemic, of course. It's everything that's come along with the last year and a half. But it's complicated. It's complicated. In fact, experts are saying that it's going to take decades before we finally understand the implications of what this pandemic has had on the world, of what COVID has done relationally, spiritually, emotionally, physically to the world. It's going to take decades before we finally fully understand the implications of what this this disease has done to the world. We know it's not good, though. We feel it. We live it every single day. These past two years have created the perfect scenario for tension, don't you think? And we can think about that. We can reflect on what's taken place over the last two years, year and a half or so. They essentially shut down the world for a significant period of time. They forced us to spend an enormous amount of time with certain people and completely absent from other people, right? Some people that might drive us crazy, other people who give us peace and joy. We're forced to stay away from. We're forced to stay with some people who drive us nuts sometimes. It is a crazy, crazy scenario. If you're a parent, suddenly you're, you're homeschooling. Remember those days when we all had to be homeschoolers? Whether you liked it or not, we all had to homeschool our children. Crazy. It creates crazy people. I don't know how you teachers do it every day. Praise you. Thank you, teachers, for doing that because it creates crazy people when we have to homeschool our children. There's compounding disappointment after disappointment after disappointment and loss on top of loss, fear, health, financial worries. And then you take... The unholy trinity. Now, we have the holy trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but you also have the unholy trinity. There are, there are three topics, right? Two, two, two traditional topics that you never talk about, right? When you go to Thanksgiving dinner, when you go to Christmas dinner, two topics you never talk about are? Politics and religion, of course. Now there's a third one. Now there's a third one, right? Over the last year and a half, there is a third one. The third one is Science, my friends, science. Do not talk about science. A year and a half ago, I did not know anybody who was an expert in science, and now I know tons of people who all of a sudden have degrees in science because they watched three YouTube videos and listened to a podcast, and all of a sudden they are an expert in science. And now you take what you know about masks and the virus and politics And who's on what side of all these various debates? And you mix that with religion because, you know, if you had faith, then you would do this. And if you have enough faith, then you would do this. And you mix all these together. And and what do you get? You get some of the meanest people that we have ever met. A lot of heads nodding there. Okay, we get it. We get it. We feel it. How many of you know somebody who is difficult to love right now? Yeah. Someone said that this is the age of perpetual offense. Have you guys noticed, noticed that? perpetual offense people right now they are quick to become angry they're quick to judge they're quick to call foul they're incredibly quick to be offended you hurt me you wrong me i'm going to cancel you you hurt me you wrong me i'm going to cancel you just the way of our society right now 
What I've noticed is that if you are any continual search to be offended, my friends, you will always find what you are looking for. I can promise you, if you are looking to get hurt, if you're looking to be offended, if you're looking to be wronged, my friends, you're always going to find it. You will always find what you are looking for. The challenge is there is absolutely no win whatsoever in living offended. I've never met a single person in my life who said, man, my life is so much better. My life is so much more complete. My life is so much more whole because I'm angry all the time. Nobody says that. Why don't people say that? Because it doesn't happen. It's not true. We have to understand right now that people are hurting, that people are on edge, and they're going to hurt you, and they're going to offend you. We need to recognize that being offended, my friends, is inevitable, but living offended is a choice. It's a choice. It's a choice. And as followers of Christ, we must choose wisely. So we are in a series called Missing Peace, and today we are going to talk about um, relationships. The title of this message is titled, Help, These People Are Driving Me Crazy. And so I'm going to give you a download of a lot of relational truths, a lot of relational principles, so I would encourage you to take some notes today, get your cameras out to take some pictures, because I'm going to be throwing a lot at you today. I, I really debated breaking this message up into a few, but there's so many other topics we want to get through this holiday season. So we will come back to relationships, I promise you, early on in 2022, because this is so important right now. But today I'm going to throw a lot at you, so get ready to drink from the fire hose. You ready? We're going to look at a passage of scripture out of Paul's letter to the Romans. If you have text with you, you're welcome to open them up to chapter 12. Otherwise, words will be on the screen. Romans 12, 14 through 18. It is easy to read, incredibly difficult to live. This is what Paul said. If you've got anybody who's a little difficult to love right now, listen to what Paul says. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. As followers of Jesus, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. He says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And then verse 18, a very, very key verse that we're going to get back to in just a little bit. The Apostle Paul tells us, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with the people who like you, the people who treat you well, the people that you like. No, live at peace with everyone. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. We could say this, bless those who are mean to you, or bless those who are short with you, or bless those who disagree with you. The word bless comes from the Greek word eulegeo. It's been a long time since I've taken Greek, so apologize there. Eulegeo. The word EU, it's a composition of two words. EU means good, and legeo means word. And so this word literally means good word. Speak a good word when you bless somebody. Speak a good word over those people who are angry towards you. Speak a good word over those who harm you. Speak a good word over those who hurt you. Speak a good word. Wish the best for someone. Speak well of someone. Now, I don't know about you, but it's really easy to speak a good word over those people who I like. It's easy to speak a good word over those people who are good to me, who speak a good word about me. 
It's easy to bless someone who's a blessing. It's, it's easy to be nice to someone who is nice. It's easy to be generous with someone who is generous, but it's incredibly difficult when someone offends you, when someone is harsh, when someone belittles you or leaves you out, hurts your feelings. Isn't it hard to bless those people? It's easy to wish harm on somebody who hurts you. It's easy to want revenge. It's easy to be angry. It's easy to feel justified then in our anger. But Paul gives us a very specific command, my friends, a very direct command. And in the Greek language, his command is called a present imperative. And that simply means that you're supposed to do what you do, but then continue to do it. So this isn't a one-time action. This is a continual action that you're continually supposed to do. And so very literally, Paul said, bless those who persecute you. But he could translate it this way. Be a continual blessing to those who are a continual problem. And we know some people like that, don't we? Be a continual blessing to those who are a continual problem. Why? Why, Paul? Why? Why should I do this? Am I just supposed to get steamrolled? Am I supposed to just be a punching bag? Where's the self-love in that? See, one thing that is imperative to understand is that all of Paul's writings, whenever he gives advice, whenever he gives a command, he is reiterating what he has already seen God do. He's looking at God's behavior towards humanity and saying, hey, this is what it means to be rightly human. People made in God's image, mimicking God, using God's example, and then enacting that example out in their community. We are supposed to be like God in the world. And so let's look at how God treated us and then go and live likewise. And so he begins this whole section in verse 12 and verse 1 by saying, in view of God's mercy. As we look at God's behavior towards us, as we look at God's mercy towards us, consider for a moment how merciful has God been to you? You stop to think about that as you wake up in the morning. How merciful has God been to you? More than you deserve, certainly, right? How much has he has forgiven you? even though you didn't deserve it. How gracious has God been to you? How loving has God been to you? In view of that, right, in view of God's goodness, in view of his grace, in view of his love, Paul tells us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an interesting phrase, and we're going to come back to that in in just a second. But in view of who God is and what God has done, offer your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship. See, worshiping God isn't just about songs we sing. It's the life that we live. Loving people as God has loved us, this is an act of worship. And so how do we do this? Well, Paul says that we are a living sacrifice. Now, that seems like a contradiction of terms, I think. Living sacrifice. When I think of sacrifices, I tend to think of dead things. You guys with me on that? When I think of living sacrifices, I, I, it's a contradiction of terms, it seems. What is a living sacrifice? Well, anytime an animal was sacrificed, if the animal, you know, was taking volunteers, how, how many of the lambs would have said, yeah, yeah, t- take me, take me, slip my throat. You know, I want to be the one who gets thrown up on that altar. Slip my throat, stab me. I, I don't think many of the lambs were probably volunteering for the job of being the sacrificial lamb. But when you think of a sacrifice, I think of the lamb of God who said, take me. Remember how Jesus says this? Remember what Jesus does? He says, take me. As a living sacrifice, he says, take me. I am willing to die. Living sacrifice. Nobody chose me out of the flock. I chose it on my own. This was my will to lay down my life. He says in John, nobody takes my life 
from me. I lay it down out of my own choosing. I have chosen to be a living sacrifice. I've chosen to die to my own selfish interests and I'm going to lay my life down now for the benefit of others. And so friends, how do you love others? How do you love those who are hard to love? How do you love others? We lay down our own natural responses. We become a living sacrifice like Christ was a living sacrifice. We lay down our own selfish desires. We surrender. We die to ourselves so that Christ can love others through us. Because I don't know about you, when I try to just love out of my own strength, when I try to conjure up the ability to love those people who are hard to love, I fail miserably at it. It's hard. I don't have that strength within myself, and so I need to lay down my life. I need to let Christ live through me as I surrender, and I choose to die to my own selfish interests, and I let Christ and his love live through me. Paul said in Galatians that I am crucified with Christ, and yet I'm still here. I'm still living. I have been crucified with Christ, but nevertheless I live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me, and Christ now lives through me. And so how do we love people? It's not me. It's not my strength. It's not my power. It's not my ability. I don't have that in me. I want to hit back. I want to fight back. I want to punch back. I want to hurt back. I want to retaliate. I want to revenge, but it's not me, right? I have died to myself. And now Christ and his love lives in me and through me to love those people who are hard to love. In view of what God has done for us, I let Christ live through me. Paul goes on to say then in Romans chapter 12 in verse 16, he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. Why don't we say that together, my friends? Do not be conceited. Say it again. Do not be conceited. He says, do not be proud, do not be conceited. Do not be proud, do not be conceited. Do not be proud, do not be conceited. I'm saying this to you, friends, not the person sitting next to you. Not the person you think needs to hear this. I'm saying this to each and every one of us, my friends. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. In the Greek language, this is translated very in a very fascinating way. It says this, do not be proud, do not be conceited. That is how it is translated. That is what Paul is trying to get ready and help us understand. Do not be proud, do not be conceited. And my friends, don't we know a lot of proud and conceited people right now? Hasn't the political issues and the political tensions of America brought up a lot of proud and conceited people? who think they know everything and think they're right and they stand upon their principles and they know and they know and they know and you're wrong and they know because they're right. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. Remember, my friends, Jesus didn't tell us to be right. Jesus told us to be loving. Jesus did not tell us to be right all of the time. He told us to be loving. He didn't say that the world was going to know us by how correct we are. He said the world would know us by how loving we are. Some of my conservative friends say things like, um, I can't believe that any liberal could ever love Jesus. I, 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 just, I, just, I just can't believe it. There's no way that they could love Jesus. Understanding their principles and their morals and what they permit, I can't believe that they could ever love Jesus. And on the other hand, I've got some liberal friends who say, you know, all those conservatives are just a bunch of hate mongers. There's no way that they could ever really love Jesus. 
And if you can't for a moment visualize someone else who has been born in a different part of the world, around a totally different way of thinking with different parents and different contexts and different skin colors and, and different governments and different opportunities and different threats, and you can't imagine for a moment how somebody could love Jesus from a different perspective at a different point in their walk than what you're on? What would the world be like if God only loved those who are exactly like him? What would the world be like if God only loved those who were exactly like him? My friends, we'd all be screwed. We'd all be lost. Because all of us are sinners. And all of us are far from God. And yet, here we are, saved, rescued by the God who loves us. And so when people talk, when you're sitting at that Christmas table, when people talk, don't, don't listen to respond, don't listen to be correct, listen to understand and listen to love. Try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and try to gain their perspective for just a moment before you respond. My friends, we always start with grace and then we lead towards truth. If you can't understand another perspective, your impact is always going to be limited. And we're followers of Christ and so we have to be bigger than that. We have to be bigger than that. We have to be empathetic because empathy says that I'm going to come down into another person's perspective, into another person's position, into another person's state, and I'm going to start to view the world from there and understand, perhaps, why they feel and believe the way that they do. And so we're going to face conflict. We're going to face misunderstandings. We're going to face different perspectives. It's just natural. It comes with being human in community and in relationships. But here's the thing. Psychologists will tell us that because our brains are biologically wired to protect and to defend, what you tend to do is to tell yourself a story that explains away the gap of knowledge. So when, when you are at a table at Christmas dinner, for instance, and, and your, your brother starts talking again, and you're like, oh, there he goes again, you know, like, and, uh, and you have this, this lack, this, this gap of knowledge is created. He has his perspectives, you have your perspectives, and, and we fill it with a story. Naturally, our brains are wired to protect and to defend, and so we fill that gap with a story. We make up a story to, to fill the gap. And so, for example, if, if, if I'm short with you or if I'm, I'm late or if I do something wrong, I tend to judge myself by my intentions, but I judge you by your actions. In other words, if, if I wasn't kind or I was a little bit short, I'll say, hey, you know what my intentions were, and that's not what I meant. I mean, I was running late, and you should understand, but if you are short with me, I judge you by your actions. You're just a jerk. You're just a loser. You're just disrespectful. We give ourselves way more grace than we tend to give other people. And so what we tend to do is we tend to tell ourselves a story about something we don't understand. And, and what the devil, I think, wants to do is whenever we tell ourselves a story about someone else, he wants the premise to be accusations because he is the great accuser, right? He is the great accuser. And so he wants our story to be based in accusations towards the other person. So if someone does something to hurt me or offend me, he wants me to say, well, I can't trust her. Well, he's only out for himself. Well, people are always going to lie to me, and they're always going to let me down, and, and Christians are always going to be this way, and my dad is always going to be this way, and my mom is always going to be this way. And we tend to fill in that gap of lack of knowledge with accusations, with the story we tell ourselves based on, on accusations. And the devil wants our stories to be, in, to be rooted in accusations, but God, God wants our stories to be rooted in love. 
Because what do accusations do? Well, come on, for those of you who have ever experienced this, you know accusations erode marriages. Accusations erode relationships. They erode friendships. And some of you are seeing that right now on your very own. You're, you're in the midst of this. You're feeling this every single day. This is your story. Accuse, 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 accuse. Accusations divide churches. They split friendships. But Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. He says, love always trusts. Love always makes the intentional choice to put a generous response into the lack of knowledge created by misunderstanding. And then he said in Ephesians, let it all be love, right? Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love for one another, because of your love. They're they're not going to know us by how correct we are. The world's going to know us by the way we love. And that's why, remember, that yes, my friends, you are going to be offended. It is inevitable to be offended. But living offended is a choice that you make. I tell myself over and over and over and over again this truth, and I hope that you'll begin to tell yourself this truth as well, that your life is too short and your calling is too great to be offended by something small. It just is. Life is too short, my friends. You know this. You know life is too short, and your calling as a follower of Jesus is far too great to be offended by something so small. Imagine if Jesus was easily offended. Imagine if God was easily offended. Think about it. Uh, He couldn't even do his mission if he was easily offended. Imagine if Jesus was easily offended. You know, Matthew, come on, man. You're not paying attention to my sermon. Why aren't you taking notes, Matthew? How come you can't remember what I said? You know, Thomas, you're always doubting me. Only one leper came back to thank me after healing them all and fixing them all. Come on. I mean, time and time again, Jesus would have been justified in being offended, and yet he was not offended. He rose above all of those offenses. Proverbs 19 actually tells us this, and this is really powerful, I think. It says, a person's wisdom yields patience, and it is to one's glory to what? Overlook an offense. Wouldn't it be amazing that because of God's love for us, we got better at overlooking offenses? This isn't the same as pretending it didn't happen, by the way, but overlooking an offense is a conscious decision to let it go. Okay, that's it. It's a conscious decision to let it go, to overlook it, to rise above it. It's essentially like real-time forgiveness in some ways. It's forgiveness in that very moment. The word overlook in the Hebrew language is the word avor, and it means to pass over. It means to get above it, to rise above it, to go above it, to get over it. And so I'm over it, right? I'm on top of it. I'm not going to play down with you. You want to go down there? That's where you want to play? That's where you want to live? You want to play down there? Well, you know what? I'm better than that. I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to live up here. I'm going to live over it. I'm going to live above it. We got more important things to do. I'm over it. That offense, yeah, it's an offense, yeah, but you know what? I'm over it. I'm going to go on. I'm moving on. Forgiveness in the moment. Someone's rude to you, I'm over it. Your mother-in-law is parenting your kids again, I'm over it. That never happens, by the way, in my scenario. Someone makes a passive-aggressive statement, I'm over it. I was just in Minnesota for four days. I heard a lot of it, all right? That's how we live out there. I'm over it. doesn't bother me. Your spouse makes fun of the way that you chew. Never happens in my house. 
Your kids unloaded the dishwasher wrong again? I'm over it, right? Like, our calling is too important and our life is too short to be caught up in such minor offenses, friends. We've got more important things to do. And so apply this to the jerk at the mall, apply it to the boss, apply it to your neighbor, apply it to your family members, and most importantly, apply it to the people that you love the most. Apply it to the people in your home. And sometimes people say, you know, yeah, well, you know, you have this perfect marriage, right? You have this amazing household. And yeah, you know what? Emily and I do have a phenomenal marriage because we work at it a lot. We put a lot of effort. We put a lot of dollars into our marriage. We go on a lot of dates, a lot of trips away together. We invest in our marriage, right? It's very, very important. But that does not mean that we never argue. We have very constructive discussions sometimes, okay? That's what arguing is, right? Constructive discussions. But our arguments are always bathed in love because we choose to put the other person ahead of the issue. Our arguments are always based in love. And an argument bathed in love doesn't seek to win the argument my friends, because love seeks to protect the relationship. Restoration Church, in your efforts to be right, some of you have forgotten to be loving. Can I just say that one more time for all y'all? In our efforts to be right, sometimes we forget to be loving. And so I'm over it. I am choosing to overlook it. Our marriages, our ministry, our calling is too great, and life is far too short, my friends, to be caught up in something so small. And so this is our key verse. We've we've come to our key verse, right, in verse 18. How you love those people, how do you love those people that are really difficult to love? We all have them. Verse 18, Romans 12 says this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes you can't control what somebody else does. Most of the time, all the time, in fact. You cannot control what other people do. But as far as it depends on not them, on you. As far as it depends on you. Whatever is in your response, whatever is in your power to choose, we're going to live at peace with everyone. That means that the person you're not talking to right now, that means the brother that has offended you, that means the mother-in-law who has offended you, that means that old friend from high school that you offended way back in the day and it still haunts you at night as far as it depends on you as far as it goes with you you are going to do what is right that person who is really rude to you as far as it depends on you my friend you are going to do what is right as far as it depends on you you have a choice to make realizing something we all know but sometimes we often overlook is that you are only one person in every relationship that you have We forget this sometimes, don't we? You're only one person in every relationship you have. So as far as it depends on you, not on them, you cannot control the other person in your relationship. You can control one person in the relationship, and that is you. So as far as it depends on you, your responsibility in every relationship you have is to consider how God has treated you While you were still a jerk, while you were still a sinner, while you were still rude, while you were still manipulating, while you were still abusing, while you were still slandering, while you were still hurtful, and having been transformed by his grace, having been transformed by his love in view of God's mercy, extend now that same 
mercy, love, grace to others as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. This means that sometimes reconciliation is not going to be possible. We need to understand that. This means that peace is not always possible because a relationship requires two equal participants. And sometimes, as far as it depends on the other person, they don't want peace. They don't want reconciliation. And so how do we love those people? Let's recap real quick what we have learned today. First, my friends, choose not to live offended. Choose not to live offended. Do not live in a spirit of constant offense. Do not live with that file drawer of all of their wrongs constantly open and before you. Choose to shut it. Choose to shut it because that is exactly what God did for you. He does not live in offense towards you, my friends. Forgive the wrongs. And then live as if you have forgotten their wrongs. Second, choose to be a continual blessing to those who are a continual problem. Choose to speak well of those who choose to speak ill of you. Even if they are a problem to you, a thorn in your side, a toxic, poisonless drip in your heart and mind, choose, 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 choose. See how these are all choices that you make? You have the power to choose. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you to empower you and to live through you. Choose to be a continual blessing to those who are a continual problem. Third, choose to always be loving, not always right. This takes some humility, understanding that everybody has a perspective, and those perspectives are formed from a lifetime of experiences. Step into somebody else's shoes. Choose to be loving, not always right. Fourth, choose the gracious response, but always lead towards love. Because whenever you have one without the other, you don't have love. And ultimately, friends, that is our goal. You see, truth calls out sin. It does. Truth, loving somebody, truth calls out sin. Truth calls out hurt. Truth speaks clearly about consequences of sin. And truth illustrates the consequence of that sin. We put our kids in time out, don't we? We take away the car keys. We discipline our children and we discipline others. We speak truth into sin. We speak truth into hurt. We speak truth into the selfishness that people are living with, the toxic selfishness that people drip into our relationships. We must choose to speak truth into it. Truth comes clean about which side of the line it's standing on and speaks honestly about which side of the line someone else is standing on and how it then affects the relationship. Truth stands courageously and it speaks boldly, but my friends, without grace, truth will always only be condemnation. If all you do is speak truth, 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 and there is no love, truth, 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 and there is no grace, it'll feel and it'll sound like condemnation. Truth without grace, my friends, is condemnation. And you see, grace is an open door. Grace is an invitation back into relationship. Grace, grace is the father welcoming the prodigal son home and clothing him and celebrating his return. Grace is forgiveness. It's an opportunity at new life. But grace without truth is always enablement. If it's all grace, 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 do whatever you want, live whatever kind of life you want, there is no truth and you're just enabling people. 
And my friends, love, truly loving another person requires both. And Jesus is the embodiment of both truth and grace. And he called sin, sin. And he called sinners, sinners. And then he went and he died for their sin. I'm going to invite the band forward. We are going to reflect on this as we sing one final song together. We're also then going to be taking communion this morning. Communion is a celebration of what God has done for us. The great love that he has poured out on us, which then empowers us through his Holy Spirit to go and to live all of these principles that we've discussed this morning. Without the Holy Spirit, my friends, you are going to be failing pretty consistently in your ability to love others well, especially those people who are hard to love well. And so one of the truths that I always come back to is that my job is not to try harder. My job is to surrender more. When it comes to hard people to love, when it comes to hurtful people, when it comes to hard relationships, my job is not to try harder. My job is to surrender more. Surrender more to the God who loves me and will empower my love to those hurtful people. Remember that we were still sinners. We were still God's enemies. We were still hurting God while he chose to love us, my friends. We are called then to be great imitators of God by walking in the way of love. And how do you do that? More of Jesus, my friends. Less of me. Surrender. And communion is an opportunity for us to cry out to God and to confess that we need to surrender. And this is an act of surrender in some ways. I want to encourage you to take a moment. I'm actually going to encourage you, if you, if you can, to stand because it's going to be easier for people to slide in and out of your rows here in just a second. So when I invite you to stand, you can do that. I would encourage you to reflect on some of the relationships you have right now. Reflect on some of the people that are hard to love right now. And then remember what God has done for us. He looked at people who were really hard to love. Us, right? Me. And he said, I'm going to come down into your context, into your experience. I'm going to come down. And I'm going to break my body, and this is symbolic then of the bread that we take, and I'm going to spill my blood, the symbolic of the juice that we take. And I'm going to do this so that we might be restored to one another. I'm going to give of myself. There is no selfish ambition here. I'm pouring out myself so that you might be healed, so that you might be reconciled, so that our relationship might be restored. And so... If that has been true of you, if you've been restored through Jesus Christ by what he's accomplished on your behalf, I'd encourage you to receive and receive it with joy and receive it with celebration, receive it with great thanksgiving. But I also want you to think about the relationships that you have right now and the people who are hard to love and the fractures in your relationships and ask yourself, what's my responsibility in this? I can't control what they do. As far as it depends on me, I will choose to live at peace and I will choose to love because this is what God did for me